Okay, so open up your Bibles, if you have a Bible or your phone or your tablet, whatever you've got, <clears throat> to 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is going to be our uh, Christmas message for the year. And we are going to be expositing 1 Timothy 1.15. That's our text. <clears throat> but what I will do to get into this message is we'll take a look and just read 1 Timothy 1.12-17 and then go back and focus in on verse 15. Before we do that, I just want to stop and pray. Father in heaven, Christmas is a wonderful time because it reminds us of the beauty and glory of our Savior and of your generous giving heart to, to give him to us, guilty as we were and, and are. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help me just to communicate something of the joy and glory of the gospel today. The beauty of having a God who loves us enough to give his Son that we might not perish, but have eternal life. So Lord, I, I pray you just work strongly today. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's go back and read verse 15 again. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. We live today in America in a very secular age. Extremely, and we're getting more and more secular as the years go by. And because of that, it's very difficult for someone to discover the true meaning of Christmas. Not only do we live in a secular age, but we live in an age where the cultural trappings of Christmas are everywhere. And because of all of that, it's difficult to, to, to claw underneath all of this stuff around us to see the, the real nugget of what Christmas is all about. You know, we're not even supposed to use the word Christmas anymore. You don't, you're not supposed to talk about Christmas parties. It's supposed to be a winter party or a holiday party. You're not supposed to say Merry Christmas. You're supposed to say Happy Holidays. In some places, they've even outlawed public manger scenes. You know, it's ridiculous. But that's the age in which we live here in America. And just think of all the, the cultural and traditional trappings that are associated with Christmas. We have our Christmas tree. And we put lights and decorations on our tree. And we put presents under the tree. And we may string lights outside on, along our house. And we send out Christmas cards to one another. And when we're a little kid, we like to go to the mall and sit on Santa's lap and tell him what we want for Christmas. 
And we have all of these different things. We, we watch It's a Wonderful Life or The Christmas Story or Charlie Brown's Christmas special. <laughs> you know, we have all of these traditions surrounding our celebration of this time of the year. And so it's really hard to unearth all of those things and get to the real truth of what Christmas is all about. I, I imagine many people here in America don't even understand what Christmas is all about. They don't have the foggiest idea. To them, it's just all of these different traditional cultural trappings. So today, the question is, what do all of these things that I just mentioned have to do with Christmas? The true meaning of Christmas. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> That's the truth. They have absolutely nothing from a biblical perspective to do with Christmas. So today we're going to not talk about trees and Santas and all of We're going to go back to the Bible and see what is the real meaning of Christmas from the Bible alone. Why did the Father send the Son into the world is the big question. And 1 Timothy 1 verse 15 answers that question. Christ, it's just nine words. We're not really going to talk too much about the first part of that verse or the last part of the verse, but the nugget in the middle, the nine words, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what we're going to talk about today. In that one verse, we have four categories. We've got a person, we've got a plan, we've got a place, and we've got a purpose. Okay, think about those with me. The person in this text, Christ Jesus. The plan came. Christ Jesus came. There's a plan involved. The place, Christ Jesus came into the world. And there's a purpose here. Why? To save sinners. It's all summed up in those nine little words. And 1 Timothy 1.15 is a lot like John 3.16. It's the gospel in miniature. Some people have called 1 Timothy 1.15 the small gospel because if you reduce the gospel to its irreducible minimum, just a basic bare bones outline, you come up with something like this verse. So let's meditate on it this morning. Paul here is writing to Timothy. Timothy was his young assistant in the faith. He traveled with Paul. They planted churches together. Paul would then send him to one place or to another to settle church affairs in these various cities. And he tells Timothy right up front, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. And that is something of a formula in the pastoral epistles. If you don't know what the pastoral epistles are, that's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. So those three letters is the only place where this little formula appears. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. And whenever Paul says that, he's getting ready to say something really important, really profound. And what he's telling them is, what I'm about to tell you is trustworthy. In other words, you can go to the bank on what I'm about to tell you. You can trust it. And it deserves your full acceptance. In fact, it's worthy of your full acceptance. So these nine words coming up are trustworthy, and they're deserving of your full acceptance. They're so important that Paul starts off this verse with that little formula. And so this morning, let's squeeze all of the sweetness and richness out of this text. Let's be like that little boy who has his orange, and he sucks on that orange, and he just keeps sucking and sucking and sucking until all the juice is gone, and all he has left is the rind, some seeds, and the skin. 
because all of the juice is gone. That's what we want to do from verse 15. First of all, let's meditate on the person here. Christ Jesus. Now, Christ is not a name. Christ is a title. It's the title for the word Messiah. The two words are interchangeable. It means Messiah. Now, that's a little difficult for us because, well, what's a Messiah? Literally, the word Messiah means the anointed one. The one whom the Holy Spirit was poured out upon. And it only comes up twice in the Old Testament. The book of Daniel, chapter 9. Are you familiar with that prophecy? There's 70 weeks have been decreed to, to do all of these various things. He's talking about 490 year period of time in which these certain events would take place. Well, in that prophecy, it says that after 483 years, Messiah the Prince will come. So there's our reference to the Messiah. Basically, the Messiah was the long-awaited one. He was the one the Jews were expecting eagerly. He's the one that dozens and dozens of prophecies were made about. And so if you go back to the very first prophecy, it's Genesis 3.15, that says that there's somebody coming, and that person will be bit on the feet by the serpent, by Satan, but in the process, he's going to bring that foot down on the head of that snake and kill it. In other words, the coming one, although he will be temporarily inflicted by Satan, will actually prove the death of Satan, the destruction of Satan. And that's what Jesus did at the cross. And then we find out that this coming one is going to be from the lineage of Abraham. Genesis 12, 3. God says to Abraham, In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So, we find out it's through the line of Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, and on the, all the way down through the line, this coming one will, will, will come from the line of David. We're told that he would be a king like Solomon, he'd be a priest like Melchizedek, and he'll be a prophet like Moses. We're told in Isaiah 7.14 that he would be born of a virgin. And as we look at all the various sacrifices that God gave, the Passover lamb sacrifice and the morning and evening sacrifice, the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of sacrifices that were offered over the years, all of them pictured the one great final ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. So this coming one embodies all of those prophecies, and he comes to fulfill all that was spoken of him. So he's the Christ. But he's not just the Christ, he's Christ Jesus. There's his name. And interestingly, usually parents give the name to their children, but the parents didn't give this name to Jesus. It was actually given by who? Do you remember? That name came from an angel. That's right. Over in Matthew chapter 1, we find the story. It's Matthew chapter 1. Let's just pick it up at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, 
saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So there's instructions from God. God gives the message to an angel. The angel delivers the message to Joseph. His name shall be called Jesus. Why? For it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now the word Jesus literally means Jehovah is salvation. Or another way of rendering it would be Jehovah-Savior. There's two ideas in the name Jesus. One, Jehovah. The other is that of salvation. And so we know we're on the right track because if we keep reading, it says in verse 22, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Jehovah Savior, God with us. So the angel's basically telling him, call his name Jesus because he is going to be God with us. He's going to be Jehovah Savior. <laughs> so here we have that wonderful truth that we, we rarely celebrate other than at Christmas time of the incarnation of God. That God himself through the person of Jesus Christ visited this planet. God the Son. God didn't send an angel to save us from sin because an angel couldn't do it. I mean, think about it. Adam, a human being, fell. Another human being has to come and undo and restore what this horrible mess that Adam got us into. Couldn't be an angel. It has to be one of the same type, same class. And it couldn't be God in his pure form as simply God as spirit, because God as a spirit is not a human being. Couldn't simply be a man, even if the man was sinless. Because... What he did had to be given infinite value and worth. And so when God became a man, what he did there in his righteous life and his substitutionary death and then his bodily resurrection was given infinite worth because of who he was. Not only is he true man, but he's true God. The true man to suffer for men because men sinned and man plunged us into the ruin that we're under. But pure and holy God to give infinite worth so that his one offering of righteousness there on the cross can satisfy for as many as God wants. If God wanted, it could satisfy for every person in this world and a hundred thousand other worlds to boot because of who he is. So he's Jesus, Jehovah Savior. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh. What a statement. Think about that statement. We were just told that God, is the Word is God, so you can substitute God for the Word, right? And God became flesh. Now that is one of the most amazing statements in the world to me. How could God, the creator, the infinite creator who has always existed and will always exist, how could he become flesh? Well, he did in the person of his son. Think about the fact that, well, we'll get to that in just a minute. I don't want to rush myself. I don't want to rush myself. But here we have God manifested in the flesh, the Bible says he's God over all. God, he's blessed forever. 
Hebrews 1 says he's the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his nature. Colossians says, in him all the fullness of Godhead dwells in bodily form. He's the image of the invisible God. God himself come in the form of a man to redeem us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. If you want to know what Christmas is about, it's that. Right there. Right there. So the person, Christ Jesus. Let's look back here at the plan. Christ Jesus came. He came. Now that implies a couple of things. If he came, it means that he pre-existed before he was born in Bethlehem. You can't come unless you exist. It's been interesting to me to talk to people over the years and find out how many of them are, are ignorant of this. They really believe that Jesus came into existence when he was born and that he had no prior existence to that at all. But the Bible's clear. Jesus has existed from all eternity. In Micah 5, verse 2, there's a prophecy about the Messiah to come, and it says, His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He's the I Am. Before Abraham was born, he's, Jesus said, I am, not I was. I, I just am. I always am. I forever was, and I forever will be. I just am. His eternal existence. So it implies the pre-existence of Christ. So where was Jesus before he became a little baby in that, that manger, in that stable? Where was he before he came into being on this earth? Well, he was existing in heaven. He was the object of the worship of all of God's angels in heaven. The highest of all of the angelic creatures couldn't even approach him without the highest degree of reverence. Whenever he gave a, can a command, all of the angels immediately obeyed him. He's infinite in power, in knowledge, and in wisdom. His glory filled the universe. He's the object of the Father's love and delight. Can you imagine the kind of joy and delight and happiness the, the members of the Trinity share just in their, their love for each other and their communion with one another and their delight and the perfections of one another? So he, he shared this wonderful, glorious, happy, delightful existence in heaven before he, he was born here on planet Earth. Now, the word plan comes from that word in our sentence came. Christ Jesus came. Not only does it imply pre-existence, but it also implies a mission. Because God doesn't do anything without forethought or without a purpose. There had to be some reason why Jesus Christ came. Right? He was sent by the Father. When you read through the Gospel of John, you see this over and over and over. Jesus is con constantly talking about the Father who sent me. So there was a plan. Why did God send him into the world? Well, theologians call this the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. And I want to read to you a lengthy quote that I just love. I, I usually read this about once a year in one of my sermons. It's by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He preached this when he was 25 years old in the year 1859. Now to me, this, it's an amazing the wisdom that God gave a man 25 years old to preach. But he's describing here the covenant of redemption or the plan within the Trinity, the inter-Trinitarian covenant. 
And he's imagining what took place as the Father and the Son and the Spirit spoke and compacted or covenanted together on this particular mission. He says, I, the Most High Jehovah, do hereby give unto my only begotten and well-beloved Son a people, countless beyond the number of the stars, who shall be washed from sin by him, who shall be preserved and kept and led by him, and at last who shall be presented before my throne without spot or wrinkle or any such thing by him. I covenant by oath, and I swear by myself, because I can swear by no one greater, that these whom I now give to Christ shall forever be the objects of my eternal love. These I will forgive through the merit of my son's blood. To these I will give a perfect righteousness. These I will adopt and make my sons and daughters, and these shall reign with me through Christ eternally. Thus run that glorious side of the covenant. The Holy Spirit also, as one of the high contracting parties of the covenant, gave his declaration. I hereby covenant that all whom the Father gives to the Son, I will in due time quicken. I will show them their need of redemption. I will cut off from them all groundless hopes and destroy their refuge of lies. <clears throat> I will bring to them, I'll bring them to the blood of sprinkling. I will give them faith whereby this blood shall be applied to them. I will work in them every grace. I will keep their faith alive. I will cleanse them and drive out depravity from them. And they shall be presented at last spotless and faultless in heaven. This was the one side of the covenant, which is at this very day being fulfilled and scrupulously kept. The Lord Jesus also, as one of the high contracting parties of the covenant, gave his declaration. My Father, on my part, I covenant that in the fullness of time I will become a man. I will live in their wretched world. And for my people, I will keep the law perfectly. I will work out a spotless righteousness for them, which shall be acceptable to the demands of your just and holy law. In due time, I will bear the sins of all my people. You shall exact all their debts upon me. The chastisement of their peace I will endure, and by my stripes they shall be healed. My Father, I covenant and promise that I will be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I will magnify your law and make it honorable. I will suffer all that my people ought to have suffered. I will endure the curse of your law, and all the vials of your wrath shall be emptied and spent upon my head. I will then rise again and ascend into heaven. I will intercede for them at your right hand. I will make myself responsible for every one of them, that not one of those whom you have given me shall ever be lost. I will bring all my sheep, of whom by my blood you have constituted me the shepherd. I will bring every one safe to you at last. Do you see the argument that Spurgeon is making? That the Father bound himself by certain things that he was going to do. The Holy Spirit bound himself, and then the Son bound himself, and they covenant together in this covenant of redemption. That's the plan that we're talking about. It's an eternal plan. It goes back before the foundation of the world. That's why Ephesians 1.3 can say that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world because the plan was settled and sealed there. <laughs> God gave a people to the Son. The Spirit pledged to quicken and regenerate all those people, and the Son pledged to give his life to seal their salvation. And we can't understand the true meaning of Christmas without understanding this plan. So the person, Christ Jesus, the plan, he came, 
Let's talk about the place. Where did he come? Christ Jesus came into the world, we're told. He came into the world. If he came into the world, that means he had to leave heaven. And we've already seen that he was the object of the worship of all of the heavenly host. He had to empty himself of that glorious display of his own attributes. He had to empty himself of the independent exercise of those attributes to be born into the world as a man. And can you imagine the God who created the universe being compressed inside the womb of a woman and being an embryo you know, for nine months, growing slowly? God is being, uh, in his human nature, he's being, he's, he's developing and growing as a human being for nine months, and then he's finally born into the world, but he's not, he's not born into silk sheets and Taj Mahal somewhere. He's born into a feeding trough for animals in a stable. And his companions are oxes and sheep and goats. And then he's raised in obscurity. His family's poor. They're so poor that they can't pay the, the, the rich sacrifice when their son is circumcised. They pay the two turtle doves because that's all they have money for. So he, he's born into a poor, obscure family. Now, here it says Christ Jesus came into the world. But why this world? He came into this world because it was here where God's creatures ruined themselves. It was here that God's creatures transgressed His laws and despised His authority and cast off God's yoke and defaced and marred that image that they were created in. And it's here that people are hardened in their understanding and rebellious in their will and lustful in their affections. And it's here because of that sin and that fall, that there is misery everywhere. Yes, there's snatches of happiness and snatches of pleasure that we can find, but just look around you and you're going to see misery all over this world. We face misery now, and we're going to face misery hereafter if we don't have Christ. Think of the horrors of the, all the wars that this world has seen. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm something of a Civil War buff. I'd like to go back to that era, and i like to learn about it. it. It was horrific. Every war, in one sense, is it's horrific. Well, wars come about because of sin. Diseases, heart disease, um, heart attacks, AIDS, cancer, come about because of sin. Acts of violence, rape, and murders come about because of sin. The, the misery that we face in this world comes about because of the sin that we carry within our own breasts, because we're born with a nature to sin. So misery is just part of what we face in life, but it's something that mankind will have to face in eternity if they don't have a Savior. Eternal, everlasting destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. And one day, we're going to have to stand before our Creator to give an account. And if we haven't been justified by Christ, we're going to stand before Him guilty, undone, helpless, and all alone. And on that day, He's not going to be our friend. He's going to be our enemy. And His attributes of justice and righteousness and wrath will not be for you. They will be against you. 
And I should have mentioned his omnipotence. That's an attribute I don't want to ever have to face. It's like we're a little bug that he's about ready just to step on. I mean, we're going to face God and all of his wrath, all of his righteousness, unless we have a Savior. And Jesus came to this world, even though he knew it was in this world that he was going to be the object of contempt and hatred. It was in this world he knew he would be condemned and mocked and insulted and spat upon and beat and ultimately pierced with a sword, nailed with nails to a cross and murdered by the people that he had created. He was despised and forsaken of men. He came unto his own. His own received him not. The place he came was this guilty, angry, rebellious world that he himself had made. The person, Christ Jesus, the plan, he came, the place was into the world. But let's look finally at this last one, the purpose. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what it's all about. The Bible doesn't say he came into the world to teach sinners or to heal sinners or to cast de demons out of sinners or to provide an example for sinners. Now, he did all of those things, didn't he? Thank God. From an overflowing heart of love, he did all of that. But that wasn't the primary reason he came. He came to save sinners. And if, if your gospel doesn't get this, you don't have the gospel of the Bible. Sometimes I'll turn on the radio or TV and I'll listen to somebody preach and it's all about health and wealth and being an overcomer and being a king's kid and on and on and on. And they don't even mention the atonement. They don't mention sin. They don't mention the cross. And I'm thinking, what in the world's going on here? Where are they getting this gospel? The gospel is Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel. Let's look at some texts where Jesus actually tells us why he came in his own words. Matthew 20, verse 28 is our first one. Matthew 20, 28. Jesus said, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The word ransom means a price that you pay to set somebody free from bondage. We were in bondage. We were in captivity to Satan and to sin. Jesus came into the world to offer a price, his own life, to ransom us from our slavery. Or how about Luke chapter 5, verse 32. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's why he came, to offer his life a ransom for many, and here to call sinners to repentance. Or let's turn over to uh, Luke 19, verse 10. Jesus said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to call sinners to repentance. He came to seek out like a shepherd and then to save to, to save that which was lost, like that one lost sheep who went astray. Then turn over to John. And we'll look at John 3.17. He said, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. What a beautiful verse. 
He came into the world that the world might be saved through him. Salvation, he was on a mission, a rescue operation, a, a mission of mercy, of sovereign grace. And then one final text, John 10.10. 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. He came to call sinners to repentance. He came to seek and save that which is lost. He came that the world might be saved through him. And he came to bring life, abundant life to people by those who receive him. So he came to save. But he came to save from what? Do you remember what the angel said? You should call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. That is his ultimate objective. Now, why? I mean, so, so the issue is not sickness. The issue is not demons. The issue is not poverty. The issue is sin. That, that's the issue. That's, that's always the issue. That's, that's the great problem that has to be solved. If you're ever going to be able to stand before God, reconciled and justified before Him, the sin issue has to be solved. And if that issue isn't solved, it doesn't matter how much money you had or how many demons were cast out of you or how many sicknesses you were cured from, you're going to go to hell. So none of those things ultimately matter. What matters is that the problem of sin is dealt with. Now, why is it so serious? Why is sin such a serious issue? Well, it's because the Bible says it's the transgression of God's law. And what attribute of God is exercised when there has been a transgression of His law? His wrath. And this isn't the wrath of an equal, another human being. This is the wrath of an infinite superior who is almighty, Nothing can stop him from doing what he plans to do. That's why it's so serious. Now this word save, if you want to get an easy definition of it, it means to be rescued. It means to be rescued. Think about some children that are trapped in a building and, and it's on fire, it's burning. And there are no handles on the door from the inside. It's locked from the outside and there are no windows in this place. These children are trapped and they're going to perish unless what? Unless someone from the outside comes to them. Some fireman comes and takes his axe and knocks down the door and chops a hole through the wall and saves and rescues those children. Unless someone comes from the outside, there's no hope. Do you remember that, that mine where those miners down in, was it Chile? It was so many hundreds of feet down below the surface, they were trapped there. They were doomed unless someone from the outside bore down to them and took them out. And they, they actually constructed that crazy, uh, whatever it was, like, like a space shuttle thing, and they brought them back up. That's our situation. We're in this fallen, ruined world. We are devoted to destruction because of our sin. And unless somebody comes from the outside, we will be destroyed forever. But that's the gospel. That's the Christmas story. That's what we're celebrating today. That's the good news. God didn't leave this world to perish like he could have and probably should have if he was exercising strict justice. No. Instead, his great heart of love and mercy and compassion burst 
And he emptied heaven of the greatest thing that was there, the Son of God, the divine Son, and he gave him over to die for our sins. Oh my, he came to save. Notice also in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, it says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save. You say, Brian, what's so important about that? It's because Christ Jesus is the one who saves. Never get the mistaken opinion that you had something to do with your salvation. That you know it's sort of a 50-50 proposition. Well, Jesus did his part, and as long as I do my part, then we'll kind of work together and we'll get this job done. Jesus and me, we make a great team. That's not how it works. You know, folks, it's not even a 99-1. 99% him, 1% us proposition. If I understand the Bible correctly on this doctrine, it's 100% God. It's 100% God. It's not like, well... I'll save myself with God's help. And it's not, well, God will save me with some of my help. It's Christ Jesus saves. God saves sinners. Or Jonah 2.9 says, salvation is of the Lord. It's, it's a gift. And even the reception of that gift comes by the grace of God. Acts 18.17 talks about those who believe through grace. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. And I understand that means the, the entire thing, the entire package of salvation, including the reception of the gift. Over in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, He, referring to God our Savior, He saved us. He saved us. We were like those children in that burning building with no way out. We needed someone from the outside to come get us or we were going to perish. Listen to how he puts it in Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 5. And you were dead in your trans trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. How much of a contribution can a dead man make to his salvation? When we were dead, it's important, it's important that we understand that He made us alive when we were dead, not when we were sick, not when we were almost in a coma or something. When we were dead, all hope was gone from our perspective. God stepped in. God did what we couldn't do. God gave life. He made us alive together with Christ. He sent His Spirit to regenerate us, to make all things new. And that didn't happen because you were smarter than the guy next to you. Or you just had a little bit more spark of goodness than he did. And so you're just a tiny bit better than him. And that's why you wised up and chose Christ when he didn't do it. It, became, it came to you because God had mercy on you. Do you see what he says here? But God being rich in mercy. There's the reason. Because of his great love with which he loved us. 
It's His love and His mercy poured out upon you. That's the reason you're a child of God today. So we can never take credit for our salvation. When we're in heaven, we can never look down at the guy in hell and say, Hey, buddy, I'm up here because of something I did, and you're down there because of something you didn't do. Well, I guess on a human level, it's true. You did repent and you believe. But the Bible says those things are gifts of God's grace. Repentance and faith come by the gracious hand of God. So, Jesus is the one who saves, not us. It's not even Him with a little bit of our help. He saves. And he, who does He save? 1 Timothy 1.15 Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Imagine if you had never heard this verse in your life. You'd never heard any Bible verse in your life. And someone's reading this for the first time and you're, you're waiting in breathless silence. Christ Jesus came into the world to save. Who? Who did he come to save? The righteous? That leaves me out. The Jews? Oh, that leaves me out too. I'm a Gentile. The wealthy? No, I don't qualify for that. The beautiful? No, I don't qualify for that either. And so we're waiting and waiting and waiting, and here he gets to, to who the object of his salvation. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners. Hey, I qualify. I can be saved. I'm a sinner. What he did was for me. I could have that salvation because I'm a sinner. Thank God for that. <laughs> oh, so he didn't come for righteous sinners or wealthy sinners or learned sinners. He came for sinners of every stripe, respectable sinners and vile sinners. He came for proud sinners and despairing sinners. He came for the whole black lot of us, all of us. If you're not a sinner, though, Jesus didn't come to save you. If you're not a sinner, you can't be saved because he didn't come for anybody else but sinners. But of course, if you know your Bible, you know that all of us are sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. So we have a gospel of good news to tell this world because every person we meet, guess what? They're a sinner and they need what we have to tell them. Every single person in this world needs this gospel. The true meaning of Christmas, folks, it's got nothing to do with trees or presents or Christmas cards or singing uh, chestnuts roasting by the open fire or Jimmy Stewart playing It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, those are all great things, and I enjoy all of those things, but that's not the true meaning of Christmas. The true meaning of Christmas is Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Aren't you glad? Can, can you be happy this Christmas if you remember that Christ Jesus came into the world to save you? Yes. Hallelujah. We're part of a ruined world devoted to destruction, and Christmas is God doing something about it. God could have washed his hands of the whole thing and said, you're through. But God did something about it. Oh, I'm so glad he had a heart of compassion for me. So believers, Christians, this Christmas, my encouragement for you is to make this Christmas all about Jesus. God forbid that we would ever leave Christ out of Christmas. You know, <laughs> what, what a horrible thing to do. 
And yeah, the world's trying to do it, but let's not let that happen in our families. On Christmas or Christmas Eve, whatever you want to do, let's spend some time worshiping God and worshiping His Son and thanking God for the gift of salvation in Christ and for the glorious gospel. So if you're not in the habit of doing that, gather your family around you, read the Christmas story, read some scripture together, maybe sing a few songs, pray together, give worship to God for what He's done. I think that's a very fitting way as Christians for us to celebrate this season. And another exhortation for Christians. God sent His Son on a mission into the world. He's called us to be His representatives. We are to be like Him. And do you know what? Jesus then turns right around and does the very same thing to us. God sends Him on a mission into this world of salvation. Then Jesus turns right around and sends us on a mission into this world to bring salvation. So think about the people that don't know Christ that you might be around this season and make your presence in their life count. Make your words count. Make your example count. Make your love and compassion for them count because they need the gospel that we've just celebrated. And let's not wimp out. <laughs> let's not be scaredy cats when it comes to the most important thing in the world. I was just thinking of an illustration. I imagine uh, some people partying by a lake and they're feasting and they're drinking and they're laughing and sharing jokes and having a wonderful time. But as they're doing that, this neighbor kid's walking alongside of the lake, and the neighbor kid's only about three years old, and he falls in. And he doesn't know how to swim, and he's flailing around. And these people that are feasting and partying see this kid in the water flailing around, but they're having too good of a time to trouble themselves by doing anything for this neighbor kid. And you say, well, how in the world? That, that's, that's a crazy illustration, Brian. Nobody would be so wicked as to do that. Just stand by, eating and drinking, laughing, while someone else is dying and drowning in that lake. Nobody would be that wicked. But if on this Christmas season, there are people around us perishing, and all we care about is eating and drinking and laughing and making merry, and not the soul of that person that's perishing, we're just like that person. We've got the heart of a monster. If we can care not at all for someone who will end up in eternal destruction, just because we, want, we would rather laugh and joke and sing and eat and make merry. So let's consider as, as God's people, we're to be the light of Christ, right? We're to, we're to shine into this dark world. Let's consider the blackness that we were going to be around. And if there are people that don't know Christ, pray for an opportunity. Pray that the Lord would show you what you can do to, to be an agent of Jesus Christ to bring the gospel to them. The missionary C.T. Studd used to say, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to rent a rescue shop within a yard of hell. I love that sentiment. I love that. I will. Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to rent a rescue shop within a yard of hell. I want to be in the front lines, he's saying. I don't want to be back there having our fellowship and... So that's all great, and I enjoy that, but this is what I really want to do. I want to be rescuing people from the, the clutches of Satan and bringing them over into the kingdom of Christ. Now, I've talked to Christians. If anybody here has, has not been saved, if you're not born again, the message of 1 Timothy 1.15 is you can't save yourself, and so you ought to just give up trying right now. You can't save yourself. 
Someone once came to D.L. Moody. He was anxious because Moody had just preached the gospel. And he, he found Mr. Moody and he said, Mr. Moody, Mr. Moody, what do I have to do to be saved? And D.L. Moody looked at him and said, I'm sorry, son, it's too late. He said, what, what do you mean it's too late for me to be saved? Well, no, it's not too late for you to be saved, but it's too late for you to do anything to be saved because it's already all been done. Jesus Christ already did everything that needs to be done. All you do is simply accept it. You receive it. You trust it. But it's all been done. See, the gospel is not a gospel of do. The gospel is a gospel of done. And we rest in somebody else. We trust, not in ourselves, but we trust in Jesus Christ, the Savior. So, if there's anyone that has never personally put all of your trust in Jesus Christ, do it today. This could be the most wonderful Christmas that you've ever experienced if you have Christ for the first time. Let's pray. Lord, would you seal the truths of your gospel to our hearts? May it thrill our souls again, Lord. I confess, Lord, I never get tired of reveling and thrilling my heart in the old, old story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, how he saves from sin. And I pray that that would just fill our hearts with joy today, Lord. If there are lost people here or anyone in the future that would listen to this message, Lord, that, is, that does not know you, would you bring them into your kingdom? Enable them to trust you, to turn from sin and to trust Jesus Christ. For it's in his holy name that we pray. Amen.